All right, everybody. Good to see everyone. Let's see here. Robert has given me some very basic instructions on how to do this. As you can see, I'm terribly nervous about it. There we go. Yeah. Um, I don't know if everyone can enjoy that or see that. Um, I have the... um, I have the zoom in pretty high. These are just my notes. These are things I've been writing for uh, the last, oh, I don't know how many months on covenant theology. As you can see, this is page 99. Yikes. Huh? Yes. I told you I've been plowing away at this. Uh, But that's what we're going to be looking at today is the components of covenant theology. And as you can see, there are three things. There is the parties of the covenant, the mediator of the covenant, and the condition of of the of the covenant and also the promise of the covenant. So that's kind of where we're going. So when we're thinking about who the mediator, or excuse me, who the parties of the covenant or who are the parties that are involved in the covenant of, of uh, grace, uh, it's important for us to be able to identify that. I'm just going to scoot up here for a second because I thought it would be good for us just to look at the definition one more time. So the covenant of grace is defined in this way, or I defined it in this way, along with different other definitions that exist. Remember what we said here is that the covenant of grace is God's promise oath to reverse the effects of the fall and redeem a new humanity through the perfect obedience and righteousness of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, whose merit is imputed to the elect by grace through faith. So if his merit is imputed to the elect by grace through faith, now let me just jump back down here. And when we're talking about the parties of the covenant, who are the parties of the covenant? The elect or believers. Now, this is a very important part because this is where we kind of split ways with um, Presbyterian theology right at kind of at this point as well. Because every uh, covenant theology manual that is from a Presbyterian perspective will say that the covenant of grace is in fact with believers and their children. Uh, so this is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this is found in you know most uh, standard systematic theologies that uh, formulate uh, the covenant of grace and and and, and talk about that. Um, what would be some of the pro- I guess some of the problems with saying that the covenant of grace is actually uh, with uh, believers and their children? What are some of the problems that we would encounter with that? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yeah, there, that's right. And then, is there something that comes prior to that that is problematic or that we need to talk about? I'm thinking about specifically like the definition of the covenant of grace. You know what I mean? Because I think it really boils down to what is your definition of the covenant of grace? Uh, if you define it uh, in non-salvific terms, then I guess you can say, you know, that it is possible for unbelieving children to be in the covenant of grace. Uh, but that's not what the covenant of grace is saying, right? That's not what the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is really telling us. And then all the subsequent um, promises that are connected to that. Uh, I find it amazing, I was studying this week, that um, uh, I was studying New Covenant theology. Uh, I was studying the standard work on New Covenant theology. This is kind of recognized today. It's by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. Uh, two scholars from Southern, uh, from uh, Albert Moeller's um, seminary. Again, I told you this before, that 
dispensationalism and New Covenant theology do not recognize a covenant of grace. Uh, they do not believe that it exists, right? And so um, in looking at that, at that manual, I actually identified several places where Kingdom Through Covenant, the big volume that was written on that, where they actually, uh, well, number one, they don't even treat Genesis 3.15. They don't even do an extensive exposition of Genesis 3.15. They, they kind of make reference to it, but they don't really interact with the verse directly, which I thought was extremely telling. You know, I thought, like, how do you not, <laughs> how do you write a thousand-page book on covenant theology and don't interact with Genesis 3.15 in any meaningful way, you know what I mean? And then they have a, uh, they have a condensed book called um, Covenantal, uh, uh, Progressive Covenantalism, which is kind of a summary of that giant book, okay? Um, and in that book, they don't even address Genesis 3.15. They don't even talk about the covenant of grace. They don't even get into it at all. They begin, uh, that little book, they begin with uh, Abraham. So they begin right with the Abrahamic covenant. They just skip everything prior to that, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but when we're talking about the definition of the covenant of grace, and we are saying that the covenant of grace is salvific, well, then we're already presupposing who the parties of the covenant of grace are going to be, right? So when, when God says, you know, turn there, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 um, of course, this is a huge text, right? But it says, you know, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel and you shall bruise him on, uh, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I mean, you know, this is kind of an enigmatic promise. It's, it's, it's initially very primitive, very mysterious, um, and there's not a whole lot of specificity here. There's just a general uh, promise that we know later the Bible informs this promise uh, to be exactly what it is. So what happens is that there's an introduction of the seed theology in the book of Genesis. We get introduced to the seed, and who is the seed of the woman? Uh, there are two aspects to that. Um, there is what we can call the seed in general, and then there is the seed in particular. Uh, the seed in general would be maybe what we could call the corporate seed of the woman, which that would refer to the people. Uh, and then there is a, uh, uh, the seed in particular, or the seed in an individual sense, right? Because notice that the progression it says that I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Uh, that's kind of a general way of talking, right? Uh, but then it gets very specific. He. So all of a sudden, the seed is identified with an individual. Uh, so that, uh, that really limits our scope of understanding who the seed is. Then when you come to a place like Genesis chapter 12, now let's jump there real quick. Genesis chapter 12, we have another, we have another instance in which this, the seed theology emerges and, um, um, I guess before we read uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, we should point out that what's going on between Genesis 3, Genesis 12? What's happening in those, in those intermittent chapters? Because, you know, it's like a thousand years of history has gone by. <laughs> you know, I mean, we read that in a flash, but historically, a thousand years has gone by in biblical history just in those few chapters. That's amazing, right? Yes, sir? God's dealing with creation as a whole. Mm-hmm. 
up until he narrows it down in chapter 12, or I guess chapter 11 with Abram, then begins to focus in on his chosen people. Sure. And anything in particular um, in terms of the seed uh, going on between 3 and 12? Well, you definitely see the, uh, the genealogies of mm. um, mankind mm. uh, kind of you know, flesh out there. Right. It brings out, you can follow the, you know, I guess the seed genealogy, if you mm. call it that, from Genesis 3.15, even past Genesis 12. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. Anybody else want to add to that? I yes, ma'am. I see God's sovereignty in preserving the seed. That's mm. the thing that I see. Is yes. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this preservation of this is the seed and it will end in Christ. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, from Genesis 3 to 12, you know, you have several upheavals, right, right that are going on, several very, very uh, uh, significant uh, redemptive acts of God. These are tumultuous upheavals that happened in history. Can you think of two big ones? The flood and, and the Tower of Babel. So these are two very significant redemptive events in human history, right? And, and so both of these are, I would say both of these are, are sort of like gospel events. You know, these are redemptive events of God uh, where they really point forward to the preservation of the seed. And then at the same time, as God preserves his seed, he also judges the seed of the serpent. So basically what's going on between chapter 3 and 12 of Genesis is there is a conflict. That, that enmity that is promised in Genesis 3.15 is being sort of lived out now, and you see that through, um, you see that very easily in the, in the example of, well, the first seeds, right? You have Cain and Abel. And right away we are introduced to that enmity that exists Right where Abel is righteous and Cain, according to John, is of the evil one, right? And so there you have the two seeds in a very primitive picture given to us, and they are in in hostile relation with one another, right? And it's the nature of the seed of the serpent to persecute the seed of the woman. And so the seed of the woman on a corporate level um, ultimately refers to the righteous seed, uh, and, and basically, or the godly line of Adam, right? That that then goes to Seth, right? And um, and the, and the contrast that, and ultimately leading up to Noah. And so, all the way through chapter twelve, you have these representatives like Abel, like Seth, like Noah, and then you reach Abraham, right? And when you get to Abraham, you get another unconditional promise. Look at chapter 12, right? It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and your father's uh, and your relatives and your father's house to the land which I will show you. That's interesting because now we get to introduce to the concept of land. Land. Um, He says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. There's a language of cursing again. You see that? So it's kind of reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, right? The whole pronouncement of judgment and cursing, right? Well, now uh, a people will be cursed based on their interaction with God's righteous seed. You see? And it says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. That is, that is 
absolutely seminal for understanding the gospel and how the gospel is going to be fleshed out for the rest of the Old Testament, right? And this, uh, uh, let me ask you a question. In chapter 12, where's the word covenant? Anyone? Huh? (laughs) The Lord said, right? It's this covenant word, right? Um, There is no word covenant here. Right? But we know that this is reflecting what we call the Abrahamic covenant. This is, but initially, this covenant uh, 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 word comes by way of a promise. It's kind of the same thing that you see in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. There's no word covenant there. God just gives this amazing uh, promise. But we know that God binds Himself covenantally to His word, because this same promise given to Abraham is is, is then reiterated. If you jump over to uh, chapter seventeen, right? It's reiterated in 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 clear covenantal terms, right? And it says here, uh, verse one. Now Abraham was ninety uh, ninety nine years old, so just a young young man, whippersnapper. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Uh, Notice the language there again of Genesis, right? Even of the prologue, I will multiply you exceedingly, the language of multiplication. Uh, Question for you. When God told Adam and Eve, uh, be fruitful and multiply, what was he talking about? Mm-hmm. Don't say Christ. <laughs> Procreation, right? Having children. Fill the earth, right? And subdue it in that original creational mandate. Uh, what has happened now in verse 2 when he says, I will, I will multiply you exceedingly? I will say he already begins to kind of introduce a new nuance to the concept of being multiplied, Right, where multiplication does not just just refer to procreation, but God is going to multiply spiritually uh, uh, Abraham's seed. And certainly by the time you get to the prophets, that's the way they're talking about God multiplying you in the land. And then ultimately that language is picked up in uh, the New Testament kind of in the same way. So, um, yeah, verse 3, Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, yeah, you'd fall on your face too if God was talking to you. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, uh, which means uh, father of a multitude. And he says, for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. So that, uh, that promise that now takes on a covenant, a formal covenant bond, right, is exactly the promise that is connecting us to the gospel, right? There's no question about that. Turn to Galatians uh, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Yeah, Galatians chapter 3. Because there it's kind of like no... uh, This is as explicit as it gets, that when we go back to Abraham, we are thinking about the gospel, the same gospel. In other words, the Bible is teaching one organic gospel message from beginning to end, and here is Paul's proof of that, right? Verse 6, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Therefore, 
be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, watch this now, the scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Wow. So according to Paul, when, when God says this in Genesis, that is, the, that is God's word, and then later, uh, inscripturated word, the scriptures, preaching the gospel beforehand, right? That's, a, that's just amazing. So already back then you have this gospel promise. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. That is who really belongs to Abraham's um, multitude, to his seed. Any questions? There's a, a whole lot there. It's just, it's kind of like, where do you go? I put my stuff up here. So I don't even know if I'll use it. Yes, sir. They, 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 yeah, they just, they like to talk about Genesis 3.15 as a, as a promise. Um, and even, I have a footnote in here. Let's see if I can find it. Um, let's see if I can find it. I wrote it down in the wee hours of the night. And so if I don't find it, yeah, all that right there is supposed to make sense. I don't think I'm going to find it. Oh, there it is. It's a big footnote. Sometimes the footnotes get kind of weird. Or like they want to appear, and then they don't want to appear. I don't know. Maybe I'll talk to Chris Bess about that. But <laughs> <laughs> not only that, they say that the Genesis 3.15 promise drives the entire uh, history of redemption, and I'm quoting it from memory, paraphrasing, it says, but they say, even the biblical covenants. So I'm just like, well, of course, <laughs> because the covenant of grace is that's what it is, right? It's the initial um, uh, formal oath, and so anytime God gives a promise or an oath, that's covenant language, uh, and that's found throughout the Old Testament. So when God is promising like this, unilaterally, to do something, he is absolutely binding himself covenantally to his word, promising to do these things. And then, again, because you have the presence of some of these components like parties, mediator, a condition, the promise that is set forth there, we'll look at kind of the nuts and bolts of this. But So I would say they look at it, Chris, like a promise that influences all of redemptive history. They just don't want to call it a covenant. Why? I don't know. They want to write a thousand-page book on it. I don't know. It's just because they think, here's why. The reason they don't want to do that is because they don't like the concept that one covenant of grace, two administrations, old and new covenant. The way they look at it is that's, they would say that just kind of flattens out the Bible and, and you really don't appreciate the newness of the new covenant and the distinction that exists between new and old covenant. Okay, that's a... Right, yeah. The, the, yeah, they don't like the idea that, you know, the covenant of grace is all that there really is in Scripture, you know. So they would say, well, how does that square with, like, God saying, I will make a new covenant? You know what I mean? It just it doesn't seem like it's the same old covenant again, right? There's something new about it. So that's a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of what the covenant of grace is actually saying, you know, what it's actually teaching, 
You know what I mean? That there's one plan of salvation. There's one gospel. There's one intertestamental gospel uh, of Jesus Christ in his humility and in his exaltation, right? Uh, That's what the gospel between the testaments is all about, the dual estates of Christ. That's what Scripture is setting forth. That's what Genesis 3.15 is setting forth. Did you catch it? I mean, let's let's look at the let's look at the mediator of the covenant. So the parties of the covenant um, are believers, and I would say that's where I would completely disagree with uh, Presbyterian theology because you get a snapshot of my notes. If you don't feel like you get it, except for uh, Haley, I don't know that any of you will write all this down, but I just probably should just forward you my my document here. <laughs> But uh, I, I do hope one day to publish all this, and that's why I'm doing That's why I have everything footnoted and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Look at this paragraph. Try to understand that paragraph, right? Uh, yeah. But I say, you know, at the bottom of that paragraph, it says, you know, that we disagree with Presbyterians because we don't believe the covenant of grace is for their children. Now, here's another problem. If you say that the covenant of grace is for your children as well, then what you're saying is a person can be in both covenants, covenant of works and covenant of grace, simultaneously. I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think unbelievers are, are in both covenants simultaneously. I think that's a... Huh? Yeah. Yeah, bi- covenantally bipolar or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, no, that that just that just because they don't believe that at all. Uh, no, they they just believe that that is um, that that is what is organically presented throughout the covenants, and so they they really take that from the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And so because, you know, it has to do with circumcision and the sign of circumcision and how, you know, even uh, in the Old Covenant, it was a mixed multitude. And even though you weren't really saved, you still were in the covenant. And so they see too much, according to, you know, other Baptistic and other Reformed traditions, what we would say is they see too much continuity between the Old and the New. And one of these days what I'll do is, and I I think I've done this before, but maybe it might be helpful, but to do something like this, you know, where you have uh, different different levels of, let's say, here is continuity, here is uh, 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 discontinuity, okay? That means discontinuity. Okay, so continuity and discontinuity. So continuity, I think what, what would be like total continuity, right, on one extreme side of the spectrum would be something like right? Theonomy, right? Theonomy would be an extreme expression of over-continuity, right? They would say that today we are just as bound to the old, the old covenant as they were. Um, uh, Greg Bonson, I got in a friendly debate with a good friend that you all know that I won't mention, but he said, I, t- I, quoted, I quoted Bonson from the top of my head. I remember something. And I said, you know, Bonson even said that there was, in, in, a, in a theocratic or theonomic society, even the dietary laws can be worked back into the society. It was like, wow. You know what I mean? So, so, so Bonson believed in an exhaustive application of the Old Covenant law, civil, ceremonial, and dietary, apparently. Okay? And so we would say that's way too much continuity Right? I would anyway. Some people would say no. You know, a lot of presuppositional apologists today 
they get in what I think is the error is they get enamored with Greg Bonson's uh, apologetics, right? And then it's just like all they can see is Bonson. You know, they can't see anything outside of that because he was so smart, so brilliant, you know what I mean? But they really err in that because they don't go backwards in time. They go forward. So they go to from Bonson to his uh, successors instead of his predecessors. So they should go Bonson, Van Til, um, Gerhardus Voss, Bavink, Calvin. That's the way it should go. They go the opposite way. They say bon- they go from Bonson to Walter Chantry. They go to you know other theonomists like um, you know whoever. Um, question: What is theonomy? The the- theonomy is just the theology of law, right? That's what the word means, right? And it's just the idea that the old covenant law should be enforced today, and that Christians should strive to try to enforce that law upon society and try to conform the society to God's law. Okay, so so before we just lose the force for the trees, or the, how does it go? Um, <laughs> theonomy, and then maybe next to that would be something like Presbyterian, uh, right? Presbyterian theology, which also would see too much continuity, and then you would have, let's say, covenant theology, Okay, Presbyterian covenant theology, and then next to that would be something like uh, classically Reformed Baptist, right? Covenant theology. I wasn't planning on this today. It just kind of was an idea I had to hook this up. So I could have like done a chart and put it up there. Maybe I'll do that. And then after this, then you have other expressions on the spectrum. Then here's where you would have something like New Covenant theology, right? And then after that, you would have something like dispensationalism, right? Something like that. So that's the way the spectrum is operating. That's where we all are. So if you want to know where people are, here they are. (laughs) So, you know, you have Bonson over here, you know, let's see, Presbyterian. So you would have somebody like, uh, name a famous Presbyterian. (laughs) Hodge, maybe Sproul. That's right, that's right. Uh, the Westminster guys would be here. Reformed Baptist, who's a famous Reformed Baptist? Oh, I know. James White. <laughs> he would be somewhere in the mix right here. Um, New Covenant Theology, so this would be like D.A. Carson, Piper, okay, somebody like that. And then Dispensationalism, everybody all at once. Jeez. <laughs> Johnny Mac is in the house. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, who reads Schofield anymore? You know what I mean? Not even the John MacArthurites, you know, read Schofield anymore. I think they're way more balanced now. They're way more educated. They're way more. They're way more further along. They're more exegetically um, nuanced. Uh, It's much more. um, It's much more nuanced than that now. So. So there you go. Um, if you want to know how this all works out to me, look at the last line of this paragraph right here. It says, suffice it to say that not all covenant theologians agree at this point. Reformed Baptists and others have long maintained that this symmetry uh, places too much continuity between the successive covenant administrations. And that the covenant of grace proper has always, now this is really important here, at the antitypical level, the fulfillment, uh, only been with God's elect. The identity of those who actually participate in the covenant of grace will become increasingly clear below. So stay tuned. That's my way of saying stay tuned. So there is also, therefore, a mediator to this covenant. 
that's how um, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works differ, by the way. The covenant of works, there was no mediator in the covenant. It was directly with Adam, right? Whereas the covenant of grace, uh, there's an introduction of someone who represents us, someone that mediates God's grace to us, somebody that we identify with as our representative to get the benefits of the covenant, which is Christ, which is the Messiah. See, the whole Bible goes together Christologically. Uh, this is just like, oh, man, this is a, you know, knock it out of the park kind of thing. You know, this is like Christ and all of Scripture, and it's no joke. You know, he is in all of Scripture, and all of Scripture is revealed, uh, and it is inspired Christologically. Uh, any questions or comments or statements on that? I really want you guys to participate today. So anything that comes to mind with anything regarding that? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, there is a chart like this. I forgot where I saw it. Yeah, somebody has done something like this, and it was helpful to me. You know, and there's, I mean, believe me, there's a bunch of, like, you know, modified views in between there. You know, but these are the big ones. What would be the final uh, opposite side of the spectrum? Like, total total discontinuity would be, like, uh, Marcionism, Right? the complete rejection of the Old Testament or something like that, you know, which a lot of covenant theologians accuse dispensationalists and new covenant theologians of being, in a sense, crypto-Marcians because they're saying, like, the Old Testament is no longer really useful for new covenant believers, you know? Uh, maybe one wild expression of that, and I've talked to, I actually had lunch with a new covenant the, uh, theology pastor who I almost couldn't believe, I almost fell over, but he was telling me new covenant that, like, he doesn't use the Ten Commandments in evangelism. Like, because he's in the New Covenant, the Old, co- the old Covenant, you know, law, including the Ten Commandments, really are not relevant anymore. Not even for evangelism. Wow. You know what I mean? And he was serious. He says, all I do is point people to Christ. Why would I point people to the law when I have Christ? That's the argument. What's wrong with that argument? Huh? It's a tutor to lead us to Christ. I mean, Paul explicitly tells you to use the law for what? For a sinner, for for a trans, you know, for an adulterer, and you know all those things, you know, huh? Yeah, Paul says I wouldn't even know sin without the law. It's not just looking at the moral beauty of Christ that oh, that tells me I should not covet. <laughs> I mean, it's like well, when you find Christ and the gospel is not coveting, it's because he's obeying the law. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Christ didn't come like in some sort of alternative moral system. I mean, he came in the complete embodiment of God's law, and he lived it out perfectly, you know? So this is a—ultimately, it boils down to this is a total—it's uh, a false dichotomy, you know what I mean? It's a total false dichotomy. Why can't it be both? Why do we have to decide between pointing people to Jesus and using Jesus' law, you know? Yeah? You're saying in the covenant of works, it was only with Adam? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I was supposed to read when you said it was both covenant works and covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and what? What's both covenant of works and covenant of grace? Oh, no, no. What I would say, and that's an important thing. Um, let me see if I can. Let me see if I can do this. Uh, I got that chart. We want charts. You want charts? I'll give you charts. <laughs> <laughs> 
this is what came, this is this is the vision I had in the bathroom. <laughs> in the ba- <laughs> this is what came to me in the shower. I don't know if y'all can see this, but this is really what you have when you're talking about biblical covenants. You have two principles that are operating here. Okay, you have a works principle and you have a grace principle. That is really what's undergirding everything in the biblical covenants. And this is what theologians wrestle about. Is like what. What uh, Kadab is talking about is he's talking about predominantly the Mosaic Covenant, um, and I identify it along with some others that I think it's something like a republication of the Covenant of Works principle, but it's un- this time under the law. So if you think about what is going on there, um, uh, this is jumping ahead. If you look at Deuteronomy, uh, go to Deuteronomy very quickly here, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Right, Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 30, but just to see this, that that when God gave the law, it was not a promise covenant. It was not a covenant where God unilaterally promises to do something on behalf of his people that will redeem his people. But what Kadab is talking about, and I think, is that what I'm saying is that even in the the old covenant, the covenant of grace is operating. Now, I can't demonstrate all of that on one page. Okay, so this chart has limits, so don't judge me too harshly, because I can't do all of that on one page, and then, you know, then I'm going to start really looking like a dispensationalist with all these charts and, you know, timelines and, you know, which is okay, and a lot of covenant theology books have that, but here I'm simply showing you the trajectory that each covenant, which these are in historical order, by the way, right, and as each covenant is emerging, this is the principle that, that that they're either abiding by or not abiding by. Right, So the covenant of redemption operates on a works principle. You see that? Christ had to obey in the covenant of redemption in order to, uh, in order to uh, realize its, its reward. Right? What about the covenant of works? Well, we know covenant of works is called works because Adam had to obey as well, which was a reflection of the covenant of redemption. You see? Does that help a little bit to have something to look at? Right? Um, and... and, and this is not as simple as it may appear because notice the multiplicity of lines going on here, right? And these all mean something. Thank you, Pastor Lynn, for taking my chicken scratch and putting it up on a nice document like this. Because <laughs> I had it chicken scratch and he fixed it. But you can see how the covenant of works actually comes back into play. It makes like a U-turn. It comes back. You see that? It comes back in the Abrahamic covenant too because the Abrahamic covenant has two parts, you guys. Right, it has a, it has a unilateral promise, but then when God actually makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter seventeen, beginning in verse nine, He puts conditions on the on the covenant of Abraham. He says that you have to observe circum- circumcision, or you will break my covenant. So what gives? It must be that the covenant of uh, Abraham is 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 dichotomous. There's two parts to it. You see. There is a grace principle that operates on a spiritual level, but on the physical side, the physical descendants of Abraham, they are bound to a works principle in the Abrahamic covenant. So it's just this is again coming back to the seed theology. The seed, the spiritual seed are saved by grace, and the physical seed are not necessarily the spiritual seed. So just because you're an ethnic descendant of Abraham, that does not mean that you're automatically in the covenant of grace. You know? Uh, Presbyterians would say, yes, they are, (laughs) you know, and therefore we must include them in the covenant of grace, and therefore we will give them the sign of of, uh, baptism, 
because they're in covenant with God. We say, no, absolutely not. So that's the way that it's all, I think, kind of working out clear as mud, right? No, they wouldn't say that. No. Obviously, they would look at things through the new covenant now. You see? So, no, they would say that that's, you know, that they're no longer, that they broke the covenant, that they are no longer. Oh, no, they, they, they would, and I would probably agree with them that the kingdom of God itself has been taken away from the Jewish people in, in the way that it was promised to them theocratically originally. Like in Deuteronomy chapter 30, which you guys are there, right? Deuteronomy 30, I mean, you see the works principle in the covenant, in the, in the old covenant right here. Is it getting is it getting hot in here? Or is it just me? Maybe it's a television. He <laughs> says, "See, I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity." What does that remind you of? Right? God is setting before them life and death. What does that remind us of? Joshua. The what now? The garden with Adam in what covenant? covenant of work. <laughs> he looks up at the chart. <laughs> Let me get my bearings straight. Right? Yeah, in the covenant of works, right? When God tells Adam, like, look, you've got all these trees you can eat, and if you eat of all these trees, you'll continue to live, right? You eat of this one tree, you will die. So God is saying life and death to Adam, and in the same way, he's telling Israel life and death. Um, and, and it is based on this. Look at verse 16. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that, your, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess. Now, the, 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 um, the presence of the land promise, you guys, is very important, because unlike Adam, what kind of life is being promised to the Israelites here? What kind of life? What, what, what kind of life was God promising to Adam? Eternal life, right? If he would have just obeyed, we don't know for how long, or maybe you know, they, they, we speak about a probationary period of time, and if he would have obeyed, apparently he would have ate of the tree of life and lived forever, okay? So his, the life at stake with Adam is eternal life, nothing less. Right? But what kind of life is at stake with Israel? National prosperity, national uh, life, or what theologians call national election. Right, This is so that Israel will remain God's chosen people. And if they obey, then guess what? They will get all the benefits of the covenant. They will have land, they will have safety, they will have prosperity, and they will live on as God's, la- God's people. Now, did they obey the covenant? No. What happened to them when they disobeyed the covenant? How did they die? Did, did they all die automatically, like God just extinguished them all? No. How did they die? They went into exile. They were taken into captivity, especially into Babylon. Babylon fulfills all the promises of the covenant. All the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus. Wow, good. Yes, sir. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Um, versus as a whole as an individual. 
Oh. Like you your Correct. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and so there's there's some uh, there's some very important discontinuity with the old covenant to the new covenant, right? Where it's like in the old covenant, we're mainly speaking about national election. The people of Israel will remain God's chosen people. They will have the kingdom promises that God promised to them. All of those things, right? But that that those promises and that life is not necessarily spiritual and salvific life. Right. But in the new covenant, it is Uh, in the new covenant. It is strictly spiritual life in the new covenant. It's not just a promise that you will continue, let's say, to be a member of a church. (laughs) Right. That's not the promise of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant is that you will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, not the earthly kingdom of Israel, the earthly type of the heavenly kingdom. It's not the typology that's promised in the new covenant. It is the fulfillment of the typology, you see? So, any questions? This might be a silly question, but... No silly questions. Specifically, the covenant to Abraham. Yeah. Did he himself, was he promised anything himself? Could he have gained spiritual life if he held on by faith? Or was it just... His... uh Right. So Abraham claimed it by faith, and then he also was yeah. involved. What about those? Why are you subtracting Israel and saying it was only a nationalistic blessing for the people? Why wasn't it for Israel and Abraham also? Very good question. The way that it was, the way that that spiritual component is present, is through the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace is, and, and this is what I had a hard time doing, is showing how does the covenant of grace transcend all the covenants, because it does. In other words, the covenant of grace is operative despite whatever covenant you're in. So even if you're in the Abrahamic, the old covenant, the covenant of grace is still in operation, but it operates on a different principle, right? What does Paul say? The old covenant is not of faith, it is of law. And law is not of faith. So they were not saved by keeping any stipulations to any covenants. Man is never saved by by law keeping. He's always and only saved by faith. Okay, or by grace through faith, you know what I mean, right? We just started talking about Piper being in trouble for saying a statement like that. Yeah. No, it's not. That's a profound question. Yeah, I, yeah he's definitely the fulfillment of the old covenant uh, law. He definitely fulfills that. But I think what we're talking about is that that what is saving everyone and all of these pardon the pun, but on all of these dispensations and <laughs> all of these covenant arrangements, what is saving everyone during all that time? It's not works. It's grace. Well, well, where does the principle of that saving grace come from? It comes from God's covenant in Genesis 3.15. It's faith in what was promised there that Abraham and Noah and Moses and everyone has access to, um, to uh, forgiveness of sin and to eternal life, right? So this is why theologians say, yeah, the covenant of grace, you know, some theologians conclude there's only one covenant, ultimately, and that's the covenant of grace. That's it. That's it. Everything else is sort of a surface-level covenant, but in reality, uh, the, what God is very con- is really concerned with is his you know, covenant of grace that saves people, you know, so, you know, yeah. Meta actually helped close, like, a small gap I had in my mind. Uh-huh. 
Ah. Yeah, absolutely. And and um so many scriptures that talk about that. You know, first Peter chapter one, verse ten, uh after he just got done mentioning salvation, he says, And of this salvation, right, the prophets uh uh wrote about, right, and he goes on to talk about that. So showing that there's continuity, you know. Uh, especially when you're talking about the gospel, you know, what is the gospel? And we've done this a hundred times, you know, where we looked at Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews chapter 1, all of the places that talk about the dual estates of Christ, his suffering and his, and his exaltation, and that that's the gospel that was present in the Old Testament, according to the, to the apostles. So I think you were first, uh, Juan. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll wait until later. Okay, okay, <laughs> no problem. No problem, yes, sir. Transcends. Uh huh. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like if you would, guys, put the covenant of grace, you know, that starts here or whatever, and it just and, and draw a line right through all the covenants because that shows us that it's in operation until it finds consummate fulfillment in the new covenant. Right. So it's kind of like that. It's like um, when you're looking at the covenant of grace being worked out through these various covenants, there's a lot of typological manifestations of the covenant of grace, right? Um, even under uh, the covenant of Moses, we're seeing how God forgives his people, how God saves his people, how God is going to redeem his people. And he gives you little pictures of how he does it, right? Uh, sacrifice, types, shadows, right? All of those things were meant to show us uh, the type of legal system that saves us, you know, the atonement, you know, all of those things. But those things themselves is not what saves us, <laughs> right? It's what they represent, you see. Yes, sir? No, you're fine. See, that's why it was risky for me to put this up because I knew Brian would be sitting there. Yeah, I'm surprised you don't have a, a laser and you're pointing out all my flaws in my little chart. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yeah. Uh huh. And all of these things prior show us everything we did not do, or how we are forgiven. How the blood of you know the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Right. It's preeminence to Christ. Yes. Imagine if we had to keep those same sacrifices. Absolutely. That really show that Christ came and did all of that, and how much we should be you know glorying in Him, worshiping Him because of what He's done. Talking about fulfilling, to go to Genesis chapter three just to see this is something dispensationalism cannot give you. You, you ever see that scene in the uh, Star Wars movies where the guy tells him, you know, is it possible to learn this power? And the guy turns to him and says, not from a Jedi. Right, remember? <laughs> it's kind of like there's certain things you can only get from covenant theo- theologians, okay? Sorry, I mean, it's kind of corny or whatever, but... <clears throat> um, what happens after the fall, after the promise is given, after everyone is cursed right, judiciously by God, is I think God gives us uh, amazing pictures. It's almost like an exposition of the gospel right here, beginning in verse 20 all the way to the end of chapter 3. He says, now man called his wife, uh, his wife's uh, name Eve. What does your footnote says? What does the word Eve mean? What is it? Is that what your footnote says? 
What 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 what, what are you reading that from? Okay, what are you reading that from? Is that your note, or is that is that a study Bible, or what? I want to know who's behind that footnote. <laughs> Reformation Study Bible, ESV. What is that? ESV. It's just an ESV. That's interesting because that's very that's a very theological interpretation. It's correct, I believe, but that's a that's a very theological interpretation. What's going on in that footnote? What they're saying is that it sounds like the the word life giver. That's interesting, right? Because what it what did God just promise about the woman? That it was through her. That her seed would give life, right? Basically, the life, the promise comes through her and her seed. And so uh, some have pointed out that when Adam named his wife Eve, he was expressing a level of faith in the promise. The saying that if God says this about Eve, and I trust that it will come to pass, and the token of that is I will name her the life giver, you know? So it's, I, I think that's remarkable. Uh, we usually think of, well, no, that just means that, she, you know, all humanity started with her. I don't know. Every time I try to just kind of explain things away, there's more depth to it. But so that's one. That's one aspect of how this section here sort of expounds on Genesis 3.15 is that it seems as if there is a primitive expression of faith already operative in the man and the woman. The other expression of that is the next verse where he says that um, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, what did I point out about verse 21 in the past? You remember? So we have five minutes again. Here we go. Yeah, it is, it is the first sacrifice and, and specifically about the word uh, clothed. Remember me talking about this before? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It comes from uh, two places. It's Ephesians and Colossians. I think it's uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, and Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's verse 23. But um, that's where the Apostle Paul talks about put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Greek word is the same Greek word that the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, the Septuagint writers, they use that same word clothe in Genesis 3.21. <laughs> right? And so what they're saying is that did Paul know when he wrote that he was using the same word that's used in Genesis of clothing the man and the woman? Right? When he says, clothe yourself with Christ. It was a play on words, but it was showing the typical nature of this passage, a typological nature of this passage that 321 is a foreshadowing. It's a type. It's, 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 right? it's kind of showing us what is going to be necessary for people to live on in the land is they, they're going to have to be clothed ultimately with the garments that God will accept. Right? Because he didn't accept theirs, right? What happened to theirs? Notice what happened to theirs. They sewn fig leaves together for themselves, right? Or leaves. And those were insufficient, right? So man in his own garments is no good. Filthy rags, Isaiah says. But when God clothes you, right, he, go, he clothes you with garments that are acceptable to him. Yes, Jonathan. Clothing, we're being clothed in his righteousness, so, you know, in essence, covered 
Yes. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a. I think it's a future. I think it's the future basis for the Levitical system, for the sacrificial system, right? Of the cover over that happens in the atonement. Absolutely. And uh, I bring this up right here. Let me see if I can do something here. Uh, let's see here. Now you guys see how I operate when I'm at I'm at home. Uh, let's see here. Uh, chapter three. Isn't Logos great? I mean, man, this is great. Are you having fun? I am. Look at this. Uh, where did it go? What's that? Yeah. So here he goes. Put on the new self. Look at that. In duo. That Greek word, in duo, is the Greek word that is that is used here. Um, you guys still reading? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's actually a participle being clothed. Uh, that is the word that the Greek Septuagint uses in the Old Testament, right? The same word that Paul uses. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a, um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, let me uh, let's go back to Genesis really quick. Man, look at me over here. I feel like James White. <laughs> All his technology. He would be proud of me. You should have seen him at my house. He was trying to sell me on all this stuff. You get this iPad and you can do this and that. I'm not very technologically. I can't even get this thing. So let's read on. He says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Notice that. What do, we, what, do we, what do we see there in verse 23? He says, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Notice that the command still exists, right? Even though he broke the covenant, he's still under the obligations of God's commands. He still has to cultivate the, the land, and now he has to do it, obviously, in, in um, the sweat of his brow. Exactly. Um, so remarkable, right? Look at that. I mean, Time will fail us, but he is barred from the tree of life. He is barred from the paradise of God. And what does God do in order to symbolize all of this? He stations a warrior angel at the entrance of the the east of Eden. And he says, he drove the men out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So now, how do we get to the tree of life? Through something else. So, angel, sword, people. I want to go back to the garden, though, where the tree was. How do I go? What do I have to do to go back? What's the first thing you have to go through? The sword. So, in order to go back to the, the paradise garden of God, someone will have to pass under the sword, which is a symbol of God's wrath and justice, right? And Christ did that very thing. He passes under the judgment of God in order to go back into the paradise of God. And and if we carry, just carry on the imagery of Eden here as we close. But it's almost as if Christ will go partake of the tree of life for us, give it to his humanity so that we can inherit eternal life with him. Wow. Huh? Mind grenade? <laughs> right, that's right. See? That's right. All right, we better go, guys. God bless you all. <laughs>